Terry Gibbons, the CEO and founder of the Center for Higher Education Leadership, and this is the Higher Education Leadership Podcast. And we're so happy you could join us today because I'm excited to be talking to Amrit Alawalia, who is the managing editor of the Evolution. And today we're going to be talking long learning and a whole bunch of other issues that relate to our situation today in higher ed. And so Amrit, could you please introduce yourself? Sure. Hi. Uh, thank you so much for inviting me uh, to join you on the podcast. My name is uh, Amrit Alawalia. I'm uh, the managing editor of The Evolution. We're an online newspaper that was launched by Destiny Solutions in 2012 to create a space specifically for leaders in higher education to talk about how the industry is changing. And, um, you know, our publication really focuses on the non-traditional side of higher ed. So we're really looking at, you know, folks who fall outside that 18 to 22 year old demographic, folks that are looking for maybe non-credit access to programming, folks that are looking for workforce development and training. Um, you know, we launched uh, basically because our CEO at the time realized there was this gap between what he saw as being kind of the, the future of higher ed in terms of a more flexible, a more student-centric environment and, and where the people working on this stuff lived tended to be in continuing ed but continuing ed leaders tended only to speak to each other at that time. So we launched the evolution as a mechanism to bring the ideas that were very common in continuing education and start making them more understood uh, within sort of a main campus environment. Yeah, that's so great. I, I have to admit, when we start to connect on, on LinkedIn, I was so excited because this is such a huge topic in higher ed right now. I mean, I can't say how, I mean, every day when I log into LinkedIn, somebody's talking about, you know, non-traditional learners, um, you know, reaching out to people who are trying to upskill or reskill. And this, you know, I love the idea of lifelong learning because it's just so important right now. And, you know, I, I, I keep thinking back to this uh, situation, and this was like you know, over 10 years ago, we were starting a new major um, in national relations and global studies. And you know, we sent it up to the Texas Higher Education Coordinating Board and they kicked it back to us and said, well, what kind of jobs are students gonna get with this degree? And I was like, whoa, you know, I hadn't really thought about that before. Mm -hmm. And so we really had to dig in and say, well, what's happening with our students um, you know, in political science who go on and get jobs, you know, what's, I mean, we knew a lot of them go to law school, but um, you know, what was their situation? And it's, that's really when I started thinking more about this issue of what happens when students move on? What if, you know, they get a job where they need, you know, different skills. And so I think this is kind of where a lot of this comes from is this shift in the thinking of, you know, people in policy making positions about, you know, we, we want, our students not just to think about the degree, but what happens after the degree. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, this is, it's kind of an interesting position that, that higher education yeah, so, now finds itself in. Oh, sorry? Mm -hmm. Oh, go um, ahead. You yeah, know, we had a little bit of a- Oh, I think uh, we had a delay. Huh? There. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, we think about sort of lifelong learning and its capabilities. I mean, I, I, I want to make a point here that, that I feel is very important because when we talk about lifelong learning, so often what tends to happen is people say, well, what's wrong with the traditional degree or why don't you think there's space for a traditional degree? And, and I, would, I would argue that 
anyone who believes in lifelong learning sees the traditional degree as being foundational to sort of the rest of people's lives. What's what we're talking yeah. about though, when, when we when we talk about the Absolutely. idea of or lifelong learning, it's how do we make sure that we're taking care of people across their entire career span? Or how do we make sure we're taking care of people across their full life journey? The degree is part of that, but continuing an online education, continuing an ongoing learning, um, you know, that's where the rubber really hits the road and making sure that the institution is is serving the needs of learners above and beyond kind of that single interaction during their youth. Um, so when we think about lifelong learning, it's really about how, how do we position our college or a university to, to create a continuous sort of access points for learners over, over the course of an entire life as opposed to during a single point in time. Yeah, absolutely. That, and that's, you know, it's funny, I was thinking about that this morning is that it's not that we're trying to replace the traditional mm -hmm. degree. It's, you know, I, I, I always refer back to my friend who's a, a comedian and does um, uh, coaching for, for leaders. And, you know, she always says it's always yes and. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so it's yes, we want the degree and we want people to have access to higher education going forward. And what could be more simple than just saying, hey, you know, you got that degree, maybe now, you know, I mean, it's not any different than saying, you know, now I need an MBA or now I need a, a JD, you know, it's going on to get that next degree, but it's also saying, you know, for example, so many um, of the, tr the traditional um, professions like lawyers and doctors and so on, they have continuing education. Yeah. And there's a reason for that because things change in their professions and, and so on. And, you know, obviously, you know, we have lots of continu continuing education programs and institutions, but I think it, you know, it needs to be more institutionalized in the sense that, you know, I went to Stanford, um, you know, and Stanford should, when I graduate, should say, hey, Terry, you know, in five years, when you're ready to, you know, update your skills, here's, here's your options, you know, mm -hmm. and I would love to see more of that connecting with alumni and saying, hey, you know, let us know what you're doing now. Let us know how we can help you further your career. Absolutely. I mean, there's such an opportunity for post-secondary institutions to create these kind of highly engaging experiences for, for their alumni and for, for learners, even while they're enrolled, that creates sort of an experience that's more tailored and more personalized to their experience and provides them kind of conscious opportunities and proactive sort of chances to continue engaging with the institution in ways that kind of make sense to them and in ways that sort of align with their educational history and, and sort of career path. Um, you know, post-secondary institutions have huge amounts of knowledge kind of gated behind their doors, right? They have huge amounts of, of, mm -hmm. of, of expertise and ideas and innovations that live within the four walls. But we haven't done enough to make that accessible to folks at points in time when they're truly relevant. Um, you know, and, and imagine an environment where an individual graduates from university, um, you know, three months later, say they get a job at, uh, in a marketing department, um, and you know, they, they have a profile that lives with the university forever. So they can update it and say, I'm in marketing, um, and then, you know, six months after that, the college kind of has their continuing ed dialed in with career services, dialed in with maybe the college of business. So they can say, you know what, like you did a degree in English, you're in marketing now, you've been in the job for, for, for six months. How about taking this module focused mm -hmm. on marketing fundamentals 
And you can build kind of an ongoing lifelong engagement with that individual where you're feeding them bite-sized learning opportunities that coexist or interact with their career paths in a way that really helps them progress. You know, I think when we look at alumni engagement, there's, there's data showing that, you know, our donations are, alumni donations are reducing. The, the, mm -hmm. the, 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 the value that millennials especially put into um, you know, giving gifts back to the institution. Millennials look at their post-secondary engagement more or less as, as any other major purchase. Like if I buy a car, I'm not sending a donation to the Honda dealership <laughs> six months later. You know, like right. I, I bought the thing, I'm done. But if they give me, they, you know, they have the servicing and they have all those things that, that the dealership does to keep me engaged with them. And then at some point they say, your car is worth this much if you trade it in and, and upgrade to something else. Well, now, now I'm going to continue engaging with you. You know, and I, I've never understood why higher education institutions believe they have this very sepia tone. Yeah, that is, yeah. Their learners. It doesn't make sense to me. Um, so I think there's such an opportunity. I know, it, it's, so much more. it's crazy. And, yeah, I agree completely. I mean, I'm, if you could see me, I'm, I'm sitting here, you know, just nodding my head like crazy <laughs> because this is, I mean, you know, higher ed is facing... <laughs> is facing so many you know financial crises and this and that and i'm just like you guys are, are we we forget i i love the way you said this is like we're a treasure trove of you know information and re resources and you know we you know it's funny you know my institutions that I, you know ucla stanford it's like I, I rarely hear the only time i hear from them is for my reunion mm -hmm. and then the annual fund and, mm -hmm. you know, it's like, I live, you know, two miles from Stanford and, you know, I'm, I'm not, you know, and of course they have the regular, you know, uh, now, since we can't do face-to-face -face webinars and things like that, but I'm like, you know, you have data on me, you could do targeted, you know, appeals and say, Terry, you've become an entrepreneur. Why don't you come and, you know, do a course with us on entrepreneurship or design thinking or something like that. And, and I have, you know, I've on my own gone in and you know, done some of the design thinking stuff that's, you know, that's on the Stanford website, but nobody's reaching out to me and saying, hey, you know, you're, you could be doing all these great workshops and things, and, and here, let us help you with a network of alumni who are, you know, entrepreneurs and, and things, you know, so it's, there's so many things they could do that would be so simple. Absolutely. And you know what, Terry, let me, let me spin this around the other way too, because up to this point, we've really been talking about folks that take that very traditional pathway, you know, high school, university, potentially postgraduate education into the labor market. That's the way we've been talking about this so far, right? But let's look at the other side of it, right? Maybe folks who don't think college is for them right off the bat. Imagine if the institution had more openness to the idea of a diversity of access points. So imagine if a post-secondary institution said, in order for you to access course material or even modularized course material, you don't necessarily have to be pursuing a degree, right? And imagine if, mm -hmm. if credentials were made modular and were made stackable so that folks could kind of engage with the learning opportunities as they, were, as they were kind of relevant to them at a point in time that eventually over time stack towards a credential of, of, of significance. You know, so an individual kind of has the opportunity to, to pursue a post-secondary credential at a pace and an approach that works for them given their other life conditions. It's, it's about, you know, how do we make higher education more accessible to populations 
that fall outside of our traditional service zones, right? Like how do we create more access for more demographics of people who've been traditionally underserved? And that's especially for public colleges and universities. I mean, that should, I believe should be absolutely central to, mm -hmm. to the philosophy and mentality of the institution. Right. And, and, you know, and to be kind of, you know, uh, capitalistic about it, it's also a great way to, you know, first of all, like you were saying earlier, get alumni to donate, but also just to, to generate revenue. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, you know, it, it's, uh, it's, you know, it's sitting there just waiting to be done. But, um, you know, it, it also uh, reminds me of, of a broader discussion we've had around issues related to, you know, lifelong learning. You know, we have so many, I mean, and, you know, I don't want to move away too much from this idea of, you know, people just being able to modularize, um, you know, these different components of education, but also we know that so many um, students don't, you know, here in the U.S., our, our degree completion rates are, are not great, you know, right. and so many people get a year or two of college and, and then don't finish, and, you know, one of the things I've been arguing for is, look, you, regardless of how much college you've done you should get you know some kind of credential you know mm -hmm. for you know, why can't four-year institutions if you finish two years give you a credential for that yep. and at a minimum just say this is what this person learned you know and being a so that somebody when they go out into the marketplace can say look i took these courses this is what i learned you know and make it easier for employers to understand oh this person they don't have a degree but they have all this great these great skills they developed yep. Um, while they were in college. And then that, that it actually ties back to what you were saying, because in a sense, if we modularize and stack um, the way that uh, our education uh, you know, courses and things work, then you, you know, it's e much easier for somebody to drop in and, and take a few courses and, and you know, get to a particular credential or you know, just show what skills they had. And that's you know, behind a lot of what accreditors are asking for right now yep. in terms of, you know, being able to say what students are actually learning and what skills they're gaining in, when they're taking classes. Absolutely. I mean, if you really look at the way that your average post-secondary institution is run and, and, and designed, it's, it's built on sort of two very outdated models. First, it's built on an agrarian model, right? So mm -hmm. education in general is designed around an agrarian calendar that for most people is irrelevant to their lives. Mm -hmm. But secondly, it's built around the belief that administration happens on pencil and paper. Like when the monks had to keep scrolls of students on, you know, on parchment, then yeah, cohorts yes. made a lot of sense, right? But, but that's not our reality. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it really, it, it's so interesting to me that we see it as tradition when, when really it's, you know, at the time it was a necessity. And we have the tools to do things more flexibly. We have the tools to be more, more student-centric, more designed around the needs of learners, but we really stick to, well, we, we design degrees this way because that's how we've always designed degrees. And it's like, well, nothing was done with the intention of it existing for a million years. Things are done because that's what made sense at the time they were designed. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, exactly, that's what I was thinking time. earlier as well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, we, we have a model of higher ed that goes back thousands of years, basically, you know, to Socrates sitting and lecturing to mm -hmm. his students. But, um, you know, it, it, well, actually, the Socratic method is not lecturing, but in any case. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but still, I agree with that, because, um, you know, as we look at what's happening right now with the crisis and you mm -hmm. know, inst institutions are 
forcing them are being forced to be more flexible and you know telling students okay we may start you know after the first of next year you know mm -hmm. we may you know because we're expecting another wave of, of the virus and so we're just going to wait and start in january um well why can't you know, why couldn't students just say, oh, you know, I want to do online this fall and then maybe I'll take a break in this winter and then I'll, I'll come back. I mean, it's, you know, they make it difficult to stop out and, you know, take a, you know, do other things. And, and I think we do, especially like you were saying earlier, public institutions really, in, and just, in, you know, more broadly, um, we need to be more flexible and and allow students to say, okay, I want to work two quarters, and if, well, if you're on the quarter system, and take a break, or or um, I just you know I just want to pop in and take uh, these few courses, and and you we're, where we're seeing that type of approach, of course, is in you know places like you know places online um you know MOOCs basically Coursera yep. and, and FedEx and so on and so you know there's been this buy-in um you know kind of externally and actually I see new companies popping up all the time that are offering uh courses and, and you know actually you know we for uh, at the Center for Higher Education Leadership one of the reasons we got started was because we saw that there was this need for continuing education for people who have PhDs, you know, they don't learn anything necessarily, you know, or how to work on committees or how to do accreditation and assessment. And so, you know, we talk about, you know, these people who maybe don't want a degree, but even if you have the highest degree, a PhD, you know, you can still learn things. And, you know, that's something I have latched onto. And I, I you know, I'm always learning new things. And that's why I spend so much time and, you know, conferences and webinars and things like that and and but we need i would love it if there was more structure to that and i, I think that's you know kind of what you're talking about well i believe in higher education you know we we've become more adept at, at creating t-shaped professionals or at least preparing people to be t-shaped professionals so you know when we look at the liberal arts and so often the external knock on the liberal arts is you know, what kind of job are you going to get with an English degree or, you know, things like that. There's this assumption that we're mm -hmm. teaching people how to teach and that's not necessarily true. You know, we're mm -hmm. teaching really, really important, you know, some people call them soft skills, some people call them human skills, but we're teaching these essential skills that are transferable. So mm -hmm. I, I fundamentally believe that we recognize, you know, folks need to have a broad set of skills that can be applied to any industry and then learn a set of technical deep dive knowledge that allows them to be really successful within a particular vertical, right? A T-shaped professional. But in higher ed, we ourselves are not T-shaped professionals. <laughs> you know, we spent 16 years learning about a particular aspect of chemistry and then have responsibility for a multi-million dollar department. That's a very different skill set. Um, mm -hmm. So it worries me when we think about t like educational tiers, right? And we think, mm -hmm. well, as you mentioned, the PhD is the highest possible degree. But the second part of that statement is in a given field, mm -hmm. right? So if someone has mm -hmm. a PhD in you know, comparative international relations as it relates to a particular border, they have the highest possible set of education mm -hmm. in that space. But when it comes to the fundamentals of non-traditional higher education, They've got a lot to learn. Um, and, and the fact that we keep thinking about, you know, once someone has a PhD, they're set. And you're like, well, mm -hmm. you know, yes and no. <laughs> 
So <laughs> I, I think we, we need to be more aware of, of our blind spots, I think, as, as an industry. We, we, really, we really have such a responsibility to people. Um, and we have such a responsibility for economic development. We have such a responsibility mm -hmm. for socioeconomic growth. We have such a responsibility to our communities, whether you're a community college or a university. Um, but as a post-secondary institution, there's, there's a fundamental responsibility for the area that you serve. Mm -hmm. um, and we do our communities a great disservice by assuming that things are the way they are because that's all that, how they've always been. And things will go the way they continue to go because mm -hmm. that's the tradition of the institution. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't serve the community to focus more on the traditional of, tradition rather of the academy than it does on their needs. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, we're so much speaking the same language here <laughs> because I just can't. I mean, this is ex this is exactly what I've been focusing on lately. Especially, you know, as you look at this current, you know, the economic side of the crisis, higher ed should be in the lead and yeah. reaching out to their communities and saying, "How can we help you?" We yeah. have, I mean, like you were saying earlier, higher ed institutions have all this expertise. And, you know, the first thing they can say you know, is connecting to what we're talking about is like, how can we help peers? How, how can we, what kind of, um, you know, what kind of classes and workshops and things can we be creating for the community that is dependent on us partially for their economic success? Um, we could use a, an English class and communications class. So maybe or you know, learn a few things and, um, you know, there lot, there's so many different things that we do. So I, I don't want Absolutely. to have to no, let's, the list. I mean, let's talk about the recession for a minute because I think this is really important. Like we, and in higher education, right? We have traditionally historically mm -hmm. benefited immensely from recessions. Um, you know, right. I, I, so there's, there's a historic multiplier. At universities, they historically have a 1.9% enrollment increase for every percentage point growth in, in unemployment. Uh, for community colleges, it's a 2.5% multiplier. Right, that's, that's the historic trend. Wow. Um, if we look at the wow. differences though between this recession and any recession past, we cannot rely on that playbook to right. say, yes, this is how it's gonna go. Um, you know, so between March and April, 34 million American jobs were lost, right? In comparison, across the entire Great Recession, 8.7 million people lost mm -hmm. their jobs, right? We're, ta we're talking about two fundamentally different things. And if you look at the higher ed playbook to recover from the Great Recession, um, you know, 2007 to 2009, universities and colleges focused on out-of-state enrollments. They focused on bringing in more folks. The Chronicle of Higher Education called it the out-of-state gold rush, right? And that was the group that really propped up post-secondary institutions as their funding was slashed, as people were losing their jobs. It was this, this belief in full-time uh, enrollment. There was this belief in degree programs and there mm -hmm. was a capacity. But the difference is we now have competition from you know, the very MOOCs that we as post-secondary institutions have given our content to. We have competition from boot camps. We have competition from every other institution yep. operating online. Like these, can, these market conditions didn't exist in 2007. And what's more, you have people who are more critical of the degree itself than ever before. So if we, if we rest on our laurels and say, mm -hmm. well, in past recessions, yep. we've had a multiplier on, on enrollment, therefore we'll be fine. You know, we're gonna have a really, really cold morning. 
But I, I would suggest if we looked yeah. more at workforce-directed programming, if we looked more at what was happening in the continuing ed divisions that exist on basically every college campus, all of a sudden you have these units that are specifically focused on what are the needs of employers in our area, what are the, the skills gaps that unemployed folks can start to fill? And what are the opportunities for sustainable careers? And that's, we have a responsibility, again, as, as, as post-secondary institutions to, to be able to serve the needs of our community, especially at a time that's this dire. But if we just rest on our laurels and say what's worked before will work again, mm -hmm. we're really gonna be in trouble. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you're so eloquent around this. I just, I, I mean, I, I'm just in awe of the way you're you're able to pull this all together so well. Um, because this is actually we're heading into a you know likely depression. Mm -hmm. um, actually, they, we probably are there now. And it's a very different environment for, for higher ed. I mean, we can't exact, you're exactly right. We cannot discount the fact that there are all these other entities out there who are saying, look, if, you're, you, if you go on Coursera, I see um, courses being offered by you know, people at different institutions. I, I was actually sitting down and talking to my son about it. He's just finished his first year in college. And I said, hey, you know, you should take a, it's free. Go on Coursera and take one of these courses. And, you know, you don't need the credits. You just, it's just good for you to kind of keep your brain moving mm -hmm. over the summer until you start up again in the fall. And, you know, that's the kind of thing, you know, it, 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 it I don't think, I mean, like if his institution actually offered something like that, he, you know, it, it would keep him engaged with them. He would, you know, be kind of continuously thinking about his institution and what they're doing for him. And, you know, in the long run, when he's an alum, he's much more likely to stay connected and you'll know, be a donor and all those great things and just be a, a better educated person so, yep. so the way you, you framed all of this so and i'll just say we, we we're running out of time but i just would love to hear any of your last thoughts for our leaders in higher education who are listening today absolutely i mean fundamentally every single thing we're talking about today comes back to the idea of serving people across a lifetime um and Mm -hmm. Doing that effectively means recognizing that individuals are individuals. They're not one of a massive cohort. They're not one within a group of a predefined demographic. I mean, when we talk about non-traditional students as in 2012 being 74% of the folks that enroll in higher ed, or rather 2002, um, you know, mm -hmm. if we cannot continue to define an entire group of people by what they aren't. So applying that thought process, applying that thought experiment more broadly, recognizing individuals as individuals who have their own goals and their own needs, we have a responsibility to start looking at how we can reframe higher education to become more personalized and more designed around the needs of individuals at points in time across their lifespan, whether they're 16, whether they're 26, whether they're 46, or whether they're 66. We, we have that responsibility. So that, that's the parting thought that I'd like to leave is, is to be more conscious of the reality of lifelong learning and go beyond just slapping it in your strategic plans. Be thoughtful about what it's going to take to execute on the vision. That is a perfect ending to what has been an absolutely fantastic discussion. I am so, so, so glad we agreed to do this because, and I want to do this again because, um, you know, as we get towards the start of the fall semester, it's, you know, we'll have a lot more data with, on terms of what's going on. Mm -hmm. And seriously, we, we need, I want, sometime in August, we're going to sit down and, and kind of take a look at what's going on 
with the start of the fall semester and, and if we're seeing any shift in uh, what's going on in higher ed. So thanks again, Amrit. This, you know, this has been a fantastic discussion. Terry, the, the pleasure is genuinely all mine. Feel free to reach out anytime. Absolutely. And this has been the Higher Educator of the Center for Higher Education Leadership. And you can find us at www.higheredleads.com. Hope you have a wonderful day.